My guest is John Young. He is a 16-year-old currently building Xiaokei.ai, a friendly chatbot that helps to create high-quality learning environments for left-behind children in rural China at scale. We discuss a wide variety of topics, including why John believes we will attain AGI in 5 to 10 years, his learning process, and building a non-profit AI bot by himself. Please enjoy the show. Hello, John. Hey. Um, I think you always introduce yourself as the 16-year-old who's trying to, um, you know, change how the education system is for rural kids in China. And But right now, you're not in China, you're in LA. So um, I'm just curious, how many cities have you lived in? And how, has, how have those experiences um, shaped your worldview? Yeah, it's a great question from the start. Um, so, well, yeah, actually, hold on, can we, yeah, never mind. In other words, uh, like, honestly, during, during the, the podcast, I'll be like, um, then I'll Wait, be like, I'll be is, this, is, it, is this the actual, is this the actual thing? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. I was actually not ready for it. Okay. I, I thought we were just doing like, okay. Um, Okay, I actually, I actually don't really introduce myself. It's like the sixteen-year-old that do that, but, but yeah. Okay, okay. okay. Um, or in, you know what? You know what? Okay. How about how about yeah. you just give but, us introduction? Yeah. You give because I think. Look, do you I want to research? Just, yeah. I know, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. I, I like to keep the scrubs in my podcast because scrubs are part of a human direction. <laughs> I don't want my okay. podcast to be like overly produced and look. I don't want to portray you in in that manner whereby you feel that you don't want to be portrayed or that's not accurate. Um, and because I hate that myself, so um. Why don't you introduce yourself, um, and and we can take it from there. Yeah, for sure. So so I, I am sixteen and currently in high school and studying in LA. Um, the organization I'm building right now, Salco AI, it's essentially we're using technology to scale kind of different societal resources um, to create better, high quality learning environments for left behind children in China, and. Um, there are almost kind of different social media platforms. I use this really short phrase of um, 16 year old building software for left behind children in China. Um, partially that's because of marketing. Um, it's, it's easier to kind of connect with different people um, as 16 year olds than say even college student. Um, so that's, that's something I'm taking advantage of. At the same time, however, I'm actually not proud of putting that in my bio. Um, besides, because besides being kind of the founder of Salkin, I'm actually a part of another organization called Knowledge Society, TKS. Um, as a 16-year-old, I'm actually kind of old in that organization. And in terms of my technical abilities, I'm also not the best um, compared to some of my friends kind of working in quantum computer, for example, or biochemistry and genetic algorithms. Um, but it's it's just a nice way to introduce myself, and because it's still kind of rare for people to for sixteen year olds to kind of be working on problems like this, um, find it to be kind of effective way to kind of connect with people. Sure. Um. Maybe we'll just bring it from there. Is that you mentioned how perhaps you have friends or peers who are even better at certain subjects than you? So I'm just curious, like, how do you find these people as? Your friends. I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's not like you, you Google search them and say, "Hey, can we be friends?" But how do you end up in these communities and these tribes? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say the knowledge society. Um, if 
to anyone that's your first time hearing this, definitely check it out. The website is tks.world. Um, it's essentially a global organization dedicated to bring together kind of like-minded uh, young teenagers who want to work in tech. Um, and the really kind of cool thing about TKS is that it focuses a lot on growth mindsets, which means the majority of the people who get into TKS and works on these odd sorts of emerging technologies um, are all really teenagers kind of dedicated to their individual growth, um, not just in school, but it can be kind of reflected through the projects they work on, the internships that they get, etc. Um, so that has honestly been the main way um, I've been connecting with a lot of these people. Um, it's, it's quite different compared to school. I'll say, when you're trying to make a friend in school, you might you know, go, go, to, go with this person to lunch, uh, talk about small talk, about homework, about something that you're both interested in, a show maybe, um, if you're outside of class. When it comes to TKS and Friends Make Here, I'll say they're a, they are a lot more inspiring um, because all of them know something I don't, and whether, whether it's technical or even you know, on a literature perspective, um, they inspire me, and uh, we just talk about cool things that they do, and like we kind of share you know our experiences, lessons that we learned, um, all of that. And um, for example, uh, Kesway, he's I think fourteen right now, um, and he's advising companies. So I remember the first time meeting him. Um, he he's kind of doing uh, projects in food science. He's making meat out of plants. And um, during the kind of the short fifteen minute call, I had to like open up twenty Google tabs, because in order to like keep up with what, he, what he's saying. Um, so it's people like that that really inspires me, kind of motivate me to keep going. Um, and, and that's why it also keeps me humble, kind of as a sixteen year old, because you know I'm old. Um, so. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm sure many people are going to be offended when by by the last line you just said they're going to cancel you on Twitter, but. <laughs> So, um, so it's the TKS a primarily online community, and how do you go about like what's the interaction like? I know you mentioned how it's very specific on like certain uh, fields of competence for each person, but I'm more of like when we met through Gen Z Mafia on Discord, and I'm still learning how to use Discord as an old millennial, <laughs> so it's not my turn. Um, so I'm just curious that what's the interaction there like, and how do you form communities, whether online or in real life, that really fosters such um, mutual learning, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So the way TKS works is that um, it's actually based in cities all across North America. And it also has a virtual program where like anyone from any place in the world can just like comes in and join. Um, so the way the program runs, it's a 10 month long program, um, but a connection and network that's lifelong really. Um, within 10 months, every week, there is a three to four hour session um, led by one to two city directors. And in that session, that's, we call it game day, which is when different TKS people come together. Um, we talk about mindsets, we discuss technologies, we brainstorm projects. Um, but the true, I think, learning that happens within TKS exists kind of outside of that session. Um, so during the week, you know, we have this global Slack channel. Um, everyone's also pretty active on LinkedIn. We post kind of articles we write, projects that we do up there. And so what I would do is I would just you know, DM people on Twitter or Slack or LinkedIn. I'll be like, 
hey, that's a really awesome project working on. Um, and, and, and they really are. So, for example, I talked to this guy who's working on nanoscience um, a few days ago. He is writing up to 100 articles, um, kind of just like logging the things that he's learning. Um, and, and that's inspiring. Like, it teaches me so much about something uh, I wouldn't necessarily have access to at school, or I wouldn't have necessarily started to learn about even on my own outside of school. Um, so, so these are really the kind of the activities that, or the interactions that I desire. Um, there is a word to describe this type of interactions, um, serendipity, right? So it's generating luck and really just, um, you want to generate luck for yourself. And I think the internet is really a great place to do that. Um, so you mentioned something about learning and from what I've sensed from like what we've talked about so far, it seems like you have interest in a wide variety of like different topics and you're trying to learn across different topics. So I'm just very curious, how do you approach learning for yourself? Because um, there's always an opportunity cost when you want to get good at something. Um, if you try and learn too generally, then you kind of like, oh, yeah. you, you become Wikipedia. <laughs> but, yep, you know, but at the same time, um, if you go too deep, I think there's always the fear of like, hey, what's, um, something another view that I'm missing out on that can bring synergy or it's just very interesting. So um, how do you actually view learning and how do you have any particular um, structure to how you learn, whether it's um, intentional or it's unintentional? Yeah. Okay, for sure. Um, so I think what we have to ask ourselves when approaching any subject or any activity we call learning is why do we learn, right? Why do we study? Um, in school, this actually isn't a question, like we're kind of given the answer when we're learning in school. Um, it's a teacher coming to us, you learn because you have to pass a test, you have to get grades, um, and you have to go to university. Right? That's kind of the, um, the philosophy that we're taught um, just by at school. Um, but when it comes to learning subjects, say that you won't actually be on a test, you won't use in school, um, I think the number one driver is about curiosity. And the second really big motivation for me is um, innovation happens when you have two or more than two or you know, multiple kind of different fields of just knowledge and skills and experiences come together. Um, and, and that's how insights are really formed. So, um, and I actually know, I saw on your website that you aspire to be a polymath. So I know that you, I'm you know still like 0.001% well. there. Oh, but yeah. Yeah. Um, there is no true polymath, right? Um, oh, except the geniuses, of course. Um, they're, they're really close to that level already. Da Vinci, for example. Um, but, um, but yeah, cur staying curious, I think that's, that's my driver for learning. And second, I want to create things. So that's my, that's the second thing. Um, that's the second reason why I learn. And in terms of picking up new subjects, um, there isn't a specific kind of way I approach just any piece of new field. Um, but I can just kind of, now that I'm reflecting on it, I think there is a pattern. It's not the same every time. Um, but there's like, you know, some things repeat. Um, the number one thing is that I just begin by reading articles and, and YouTube and watching videos. Um, right. begin um, really sorry to interrupt, when, when, you, when you talk about yeah. articles, are they, are they articles from um, the TKS uh, members or are they articles like just Google or are they like research papers? Google, right? Um, there's a term like following the rabbit hole, just 
um, like for example, like something I did last um, October is um, I was really curious about you know how humans learn, like how do we actually form memories? So we just type that in, right? Like how do we form memories? Okay, uh, memories are stored in hippocampus. Um, so how does hippocampus work? Um, and that took me down a path of like studying neurons and dendrites, all of that, right? Um, so it's going from a really high level understanding to smaller kind of sub, sub like topics. Um, and a few that really fuse the journey is just curiosity. You have to be really curious and you have to say, okay, here's a new word, here's a new phrase. I don't know what this means. I'm gonna have to find out. Um, oh, one surprising thing I actually picked up is um, it's, it's a lot of people doesn't actually know how to use Google. Um, now, as kind of like software engineers or anyone that works in computers, Googling is like a really, you know, it's like a thing we do just a lot by, 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 by nature. Um, but when it comes to like kind of say English or history, um, it turns out that like a lot of people think Google is cheating um, or they, they use Google only for research um, in a very formal environment. Um, and, but for me, I think when it comes to learning anything new, just use Google, um, start from the high level topics, you know, follow the rabbit hole, follow curiosity. And once you get to a specific level, and this is kind of step two, which is you want to start doing things on your own. You want to start building projects, um, have a path, which is called like we're doing a focus. Um, the path that TK has taught, like kind of guides to do is number one, it's like articles. So you learn, you know, any type of new technology, you want to kind of take notes on what you're learning and teach someone else. Um, that's step number one. Step number two is you want to kind of replicate and just learn by doing. Um, for example, in machine learning, you can just take a research paper, um, say the transformer, and um, chat yourself, see if you can actually replicate the research paper from scratch. Um, and during this process, you will find a lot of people is actually willing to support you, as or like anyone, right? Like if you want, if you're curious about learning something new, and you're working really hard to actually figure something out, if you just email someone, Twitter someone, LinkedIn, um, direct message. Um, show people that you're really dedicated to your craft and whether it's professors um, or even company CEOs, I think they'll be really willing to kind of advise you. Um, and lastly, I would say just create. Once you know something and um, as you're learning, you'll find a lot of problems. So what I like to do is just be driven by these problems if there's something that's unsolved, um, I like to use my skills and kind of what I've learned to solve them. And that's where innovation happens, and that's the exciting part. Right, so um, how do you actually structure like all the things you've learned over time? So, um, I mean, when I ask this question, I think part of my assumption is that you want to kind of remember what you've learned perhaps two, two three years ago, even just six months ago. So um, do you have actually specific, like, directory structures for all the notes you've taken or do you use any note-taking app or like I don't know Rome research, Athens research etc things like that. Oh yeah um, when it comes to taking notes I, I just stick to paper or pen. Um, I have kind of a really th thick notebook that I use for like everything I learned in technology to like startups um, and every day you know whether it's like a YouTube video or research paper I just take notes um, and it turns out that for me, at least, um, I actually uh, forget a lot of things I learned in school because it's hardcore memorization. Um, but when it comes to things that you Google, 
um, that you had to like actually put in an effort to find the answer. Or you know, like when you're building something, you have a technical challenge coming up. Um, it's very hard to forget these problems because you're actually working to discover the answers yourself, rather than just being fed the answers. Um, so that process plus kind of note taking um, on paper, uh, I think that's just how I, I, I can remember information. Sure. Um, if you don't mind me digging like just a bit deeper, so when you note take like just using pen and paper, um, do you find yourself writing in a more linear structure, or do you find yourself making connections? Um, across pages or do you use mind maps or things like that yeah so um i write in like short chunks of either bullet points or paragraphs um and so i sometimes draw a lot of pictures um especially say like the end of a really long research paper um you know like in computer science in ai there are like a lot of different models right and um, something I like to do is just like draw out the models on paper um, and see if I can replicate it just on paper first before implementing it um, to code. And um, that kind of process of visualization like really helps me think. Um, I think it's a, I, I, like, I feel like my learning process, and now, like, now that I'm thinking about it, my learning process is actually very similar um, to my creative process. So whether I'm creating like a new product, um, new, you know, new organization, new structure, uh, I just kind of draw things out um, and, and that helps me think. So, so um, I'm just super curious at this point, do you have any, like I know you pointed me to your Notion page, but do you actually upload pictures of your notebooks to the web or? Ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't publish these things, but um, I can show you right here. So this, this will be like examples of notes. Uh, you can just describe to the audience what you see. Um, right, so it's just, honestly from my side, it looks more like just linear bullet points. Like it, it seems like a very, yeah, there, there's some drawing of super superposition. Is that, is that the term for it? Yeah, that's like from studying computers. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's some equations, stuff like that. It's It's, it's not the most organized. I kind of keep things, everyone together. Um, but so like for here, this is actually when I was planning on the different structures of cell K, just linking different ideas together. Um, so yeah, so it's, not, it's nothing fancy. Not that it matters, but um, I'm very curious. Are you left-handed, right-handed, or were you like ambidextrous when you were young? Oh, not no, that it matters, um, it's just a very- Right hand. Right hands. No, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I asked that question because when I was young, I always like in kindergarten we have like coloring exercises. I would always use my right hand. Then when it gets tired, I'll switch to my left hand. Oh, <laughs> so, that's awesome. But after I wish I could do that. I wish I. Yeah, that's that's, that's no, special. Right now, I'm I'm like like left-handed, but I'm just like really curious, like. Where, where it matters, but I mean, it's just a random uh, um, Oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not good at like left-hand stuff at, uh, at all. Like when I was learning basketball, um, it took me a really long time to like figure out how to like left-hand like, like layup. Um, like remember it was really easy for my peers, just, you know, other kids, like they can just do it like, you know, like maybe not like first or second try, but like three, third, fourth time they can do it. Uh, I think it took me like two months of like, practicing every day to like do one so um but but yeah i'm not, I'm not good with my left hand yeah i don't know you can just like for me i brush my teeth like i just switch hands when i 
switch that's, sides. That's cool. That's <laughs> so, cool. So it's I a just way start to trying like, that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a way to retain some like your neurons in your the other hand. It's like helps you practice. Um, I'm gonna start drinking, you know, with my left hand now. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I try to practice like using a mouse with my left hand. I mean, I usually I use my mouse with my right hand, but sometimes I just practice your left, but it's not that efficient. <laughs> yeah. um, so we went deep into like um, how you learn or things like that, but um, I just want to jump back to like the first question you opened with, which is like um, how you grew up, the experiences you had, the cities you live in, um, because I mean, clearly you have a, they're quite different from most 16 years old. I mean, let's let just, let just um, be frank about that. So I'm just very curious um, what formative um, experiences they remember that shape your worldview or shape how you approach things. Yeah. Um, so one thing I always point out, like when I'm asked that question, uh, is that there's never like a single event that can change like someone's life forever. Um, at least not for me. Right? Like even if some something devastating happens, um, it's actually about like your reaction to that event um, that changes your life. Um, so for me, I would say growing up, I was um, my parents. Um, I'm I'm, very, I'm like very lucky. So both my parents were born in the rural side of Shanghai, um, and they worked really hard to kind of like make their ways into the kind of center of the city. Um, I attended uh, one of the like top elementary schools um, when I was in China before I came to the States. Um, it was an international school, so um, that's when I first started to learn English. Um, I had contact with kind of basic computer programs. Uh, I, I was really passionate about video, ed video editing back then. Um, it, it seems like a really cool thing to me, and as well as kind of programming, making games on Flash and like Scratch. Um, so, but I, I, I wasn't the type uh, to really think a lot about my future. Um, you know, like Elon Musk, he would talk about how, you know, he actually read like science uh, fiction novels and imagined like, you know, sending people to the moon. Um, I never had that thought growing up. So that's one thing for sure. I'm not Elon Musk, um, but I think it's it's like it, it wasn't until I got into high school um, that when it really started to be like okay, you know, I actually want to learn something that peers do not know. Um, I enjoy thinking differently, and um, I don't want to just you know like you know in America, high schools uh, if you want to be popular, what you do is you be loud. And you don't think a lot. Um, I really don't like that. So uh, that's kind of a period of realization for me. Um, say, okay, I need to really sit down, reflect on myself. And, and actually, from sixth grade to like ninth grade, like the first half of ninth grade, I was that really loud person. So that's why that's why I can say this. Um, I was loud. I didn't think before I, I acted, um, and also didn't really listen to anyone else. So I was a pretty arrogant person back then, a trashy person. Um, but yeah, it, it was kind of just like, okay, I, I need to start reading books. Uh, th that's when I started reading books. Um, the first like kind of self-help books I read is The Seven Habits of the Highly Effective People. Um, and maybe that book changed my life, but that was like the beginning of like 
a, a course of like self-correction. Um, yeah, that's oh oh uh, which countries to travel to? So when I was saying when I was still studying in China, I traveled a lot. Um, I actually lived in Singapore for like three months um, during the summer vacation. I love the country by the way. The food is awesome. Uh, you know the, the temperature, the weather, humidity, awesome. Um, also transportation, right? And um, I went to kind of I traveled around Europe. Um, I went to Africa once and um, been to America a few times as like we're preparing to like immigrate here. Um, but like again, just you know, none of these experiences really changed like who I am, anyways. Um, the only the only person that can change who you are is yourself. Right, I agree with you. I think how I was phrasing the question wasn't so much of like that one event that shaped your life, but I'm just curious about the little prompts along the way that influence you. Like you mentioned, how um up to the middle of the ninth grade, you were like that loud kid in class who didn't think it was popular, but suddenly there was a switch. But I'm just very curious. Then what caused that switch? I mean, was it like lightning struck <laughs> your brain or yeah or, yeah um. Yeah, so so I think it actually goes back to like you know when I was in like elementary school, um, I would like piss off a lot of people because um, there will be you know teachers and friends who really care about me and my well being. Um, they're my friends. Like we'll be working on the same project together, and like I just want to take over because um, I had like a different ideas I want to implement. Um, I remember, like in fourth grade, we were doing this, like, uh, like we're dropping an egg from like the top of the roof, um, and you have to like build something to protect it. Um, everyone else is like making a parachute, and um, I thought about making, uh, putting a tr like a, a reverse triangle under a box. Um, so, so you know those like takeout boxes. Uh, the idea was to put a bunch of straws inside the boxes to make sure that the egg is like levitating in the center of the box, so the egg doesn't touch anything. Um, and then it's like a very like strong structure under the box. Um, Hi. Um. So my computer crashed just now. So which I apologize for. Um. So you were talking about how, um, you were basically trying to create an apparatus that prevents an egg from cracking when you drop it from a certain height. And there was some of those um, moments when um, you kind of realized that you didn't really like to be the same as everyone else, if I like, paraphrase correctly. Um, is that an accurate um, statement? And um, so uh, how, how, did, how did the experience go? Yeah, so... Essentially, essentially, the idea I had um, that was just like a really different idea that people didn't really think about, um, and the idea was eventually a disaster because we didn't have you know materials strong enough to build um, the base uh, that I had wanted. Um, so essentially, the team kind of trusted me. They went, they went with my idea, um, but it didn't work. Uh, now, fast forward to like ninth grade, um, I was the captain of the robotics team at our school. Now, in eighth grade, I was um, leading a, t a kind of robotics team on my own as a middle school, middle school student. 
and um, the team actually qualified for the state championship um, when I was in eighth grade. And so going to ninth grade, I just felt really good about myself. Um, I thought I had like understood, you know, the inner workings of you know everything related to robotics, at least the design and coding aspect of it. Um, and I came up with this really, I, 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 the, the details are a bit too complicated, but like, I came up with this idea about a really weird design um, that involved a lot of moving parts. Um, it was really complex, and um, I thought it was going to work, but eventually it didn't work. Um, and when we kind of lost um, what was supposed to be a really easy tournament, I just didn't accept that my idea didn't work. And um, I had an argument with my best friend who were on the same team with me um, at the time as well. So, yeah, and after that I kind of just realized I, I can't go on like this, right? Um, my ideas are different, they're in some ways creative, but they're not good. Um, and I couldn't like sit down and really listen to people who are giving me good advice and who want to actually correct me. Um, so, so yeah, that kind of just made me realize I have to change and, and yeah, so. <laughs> so how do you bridge the gap from, you talk about how you had um, creative ideas, but not necessarily good ideas. Um, but I think, I think it's very easy to fall into like the other end whereby you just look for um, ideas that have been proven to be successful, but you lose that creative age. So um, how, how do you actually go about remaining, retaining that creative aspect of yourself while still being open to ideas, while still making sure that, you know, um, it's too easy to just listen to the, the crowd and just follow along and that's when you lose your age. So how do you go about you know, between that uh, efficiency, effectiveness, and you know, creativity. Yeah, so, so the first thing I would like to point out is that number one, like being creative in a bad way is very easy, right? It's one of the easiest things because you can just do, like, you can just do, like, there, there's, there probably, you know, if you can imagine there are like a hundred ideas in total that can be implemented, but probably maybe like only one to five are good ideas. Um, so the number of bad ideas will always kind of like outweigh the good ones. So having, that's, that's the first thing, having a bad idea is easy. Um, now, I would say having a bad, the, 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 the ability, in quotes, right, um, to have a bad idea, not know that's bad, and then just you know, try to project it and pitch it out to the team and try to execute it. Um, that's a combination of inexperience and excessive confidence. It's, it's not a good thing. Um, but these are the two, that's the formula for coming up with bad ideas. Now, when it comes to being good um, and being creative in a good way, I actually think creativity um, isn't as mysterious as some people may think. It's actually a skill and a science. Um, the number one aspect of creativity is dedication. Um, I don't know if 
some of my ideas recently are good. Um, but something I've noticed is when I'm really trying hard to solve a problem, and I just spend a lot of time on it, um, good ideas naturally form, and I'm creative in that aspect. Um, the second thing is using frameworks. So Elon Musk, he kind of popularized first principle thinking, right? But when it comes to being creative in solutions, um, there are certain steps you can follow to really filter out all the bad ideas um, and come up with a solution, an idea that really solves kind of the root cause of the problem. So that's framework. Um, and lastly, it's just experience. Um, it's judgment uh, and like understanding just, and, and this one's really hard to define because obviously um, it's very easy when you have uh, an idea that's so different, maybe revolutionary, you just never implemented it. Um, for example, Steve Jobs, he couldn't have been the first person to imagine iPhone. Um, in fact, there was rumors where um, it was either Nokia or some other uh, cell phone companies that had already actually begun the development of the iPhone. Their CEO um, or someone, an executive at their company, shut them down. Right. So these instances happen all around the world every day, um, and uh, it just, I guess, it's judgment and actually a bit of luck to get it right. But, but yeah, so. It's easy to be bad. Uh, it's easy to be creative in a bad way, um, but to be creative and useful, um, I think it's a science and a skill. It's a combination of dedication, framework, and a bit of luck. So um, something to explore here is that I I think when you talk about validation, um, what I have in mind is that typically just projects that you build hypotheses that you test and those are very um constrained environments but i'm very curious as to like for example when we adopt certain worldviews or certain theories as to why certain events happen um trivially let's say a political candidate was um elected and um so so you know many people will be like oh there's this theory why this person was elected or maybe nothing Taleb will be like hey um there's just so much randomness and you maybe you're just coming out with a false narrative. So how do you think about um, coming out with frameworks for perhaps bigger topic issues or you give I me mean, like more, more um, what's the term for it? Like, like, like not just constrained to a certain small project with clear parameters, but um, bigger, bigger issues with, you know, very high dimension parameters that it's hard to account for all of those factors. So, so it's a question like why certain people get elected and and so no like no so, so i think the question is like when when you come up with like certain frameworks it's um easy to validate within a very small constraint of a within constraints uh, of a small project but when we just you know try to explain certain factors or explain certain events how do you view these things do you feel that you know it, um do you adopt the talib's view that um they perhaps it's just randomness or or do you try and come up with your own hypothesis and try and you know validate them in certain ways yeah can you give me like an example of just like uh, instances where you're saying like it's high randomness and, and right sure so um yeah. perhaps just the election of Donald Trump in perhaps twenty sixteen oh, okay like for example yeah. like some would be like oh um it's, it's a it's a um you know it's basically a, a vote against the establishment is this like um a vote against China or things like that but um it's it's hard to measure exactly like how much impact 
each of those factors are, but I'm just very curious yeah. how do you view those events, yeah. Yeah, so I guess number one, I have never been uh, that interested in politics. I think it's messy. Um, and the reason is because I think, first of all, human understanding human nature and understanding human psychology is one of the most complicated um, subjects in the world. Um, but at the same time, it's, it, and the reason it's complicated is because it's, it's always changing. Um, it's humans by nature are not predictable. If we are, then I think a lot of problems in society can be solved. Um, but at the same time, I also think that human nature, if you break it down, it's, it's actually fairly simple, right? In physics, we have inertia, which is um, you know, larger the mass, harder the thing is to move. And um, when it comes to politics or say uh, what's really popular nowadays, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, BitCloud, um, people just tend to follow the crowd. They just tend to follow the majority of the population. And um, throughout history, kind of the trend that we see, right, is when the majority of the population um, has a common enemy uh, or they're uneducated, um, when the majority of the population don't understand the truth, then the population are inclined towards just following um, the path that's untrue. It's, it's, I think it's very, it's, it's fairly simple as that. Um, I have never actually studied psychology in depth, so I, I think I, I can't really break down, um, you know, scientifically the reasons um, our biology, you know, forces us to you know, follow the crowd. One reason is, of course, just evolutionarily. From an evolution perspective, um, it's more beneficial to live with everyone else than being uh, like on your own, being being different. Um, but yeah. <laughs> And there is, um, I, I think the question was kind of intentionally um, bad in a certain way whereby there may not be any good answer, but it's, it's just something I, that I contemplate on a lot as well as to um, like when I explain certain events, how do I know that I'm not just lying to myself, if that makes sense? How do I not know there's a false narrative? So that's uh, something that I challenge myself as well. Um, so maybe you can just you know, shift the topic to um, the three-body problem um, or Santi by Liu Cixing. Um, you mentioned that you just speed read it in like two days, like the whole trilogy. <laughs> I'm not sure how you did that <laughs> because I took like 10 hours to read a book. I don't know if this day online, but um, maybe just a very high-level question, like what's your, what were certain... Um, do you have any particular takeaways or what were certain events or philosophies in the book that really left an impression on you? I actually read it like almost a year ago now. So um, I don't remember kind of really the details. Um, When I first read it in two days, uh, now it probably has to do with the fact that I, I did read it in two days, but um, it seemed to me like, first of all, um, you know, he's, he's making connections between different topics that um, I had like never imagined before. Um, and this isn't only reflected in kind of the principles about the universe, um, the theories he proposes about, um, you know, civilizations and universe, but as well as kind of the different plots of the story. 
um, just so many twists, which I, I really appreciated. And, and that's what kind of, I think, attracted my attention. Um, I don't think I have any kind of, uh, like, like uh, especially kind of valuable insights or original thoughts on the book uh, that I can talk about just off the top of my head. Um, but um, just just yeah. to be clear, like I'm not like asking for you know hitting analysis of the book. It's just that when I read the book, I read it a very, a very particular way in the sense of I focus more on the game theoretic aspects of the book, which I found interesting. But when you mentioned like in in our Discord chat, you mentioned how you've um you realized they missed quite a bit of like the philosophical threads in the book, that there was a very different interpretation from me. So I'm just curious, like, um, what was your inter interpretation? Because, you know, I just, I just unpack the layers in the book. Yeah, it's not a book. You can just read once. And then I, I, I think fully understand what it's talking about. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why, like, I don't have any, like, like kind of different thoughts right now. Um, apart from the fact that it's super interesting and it's content, uh, really, like, a dense book. Uh, series. Um, I mean, apart from that, yeah, they're. they're uh, maybe I can just yeah. ask some okay. questions that, <laughs> that I'm just curious on your take as well. So, um, uh, spoilers alert ahead, but basically, in the second book, um, I think the author proposed that. Um, this whole universe or, or the whole galaxy or I don't know what's bigger than that but basically uh, this whole galaxy has this premise of Heian Sending the um, dark forest whereby um, yep. each civilization um, the game to yeah. expect is that you should never um, a, a civilization should never um, indicate their presence to another civilization or another planet because um, the outcome will always be that the stronger civilization must destroy the weaker civilization um, um, the argument is that basically if, if civilization A and civilization B, if A is weaker than B right now, but A can be uh, become stronger than B in a few years because of how technology can improve exponentially, so B must um, destroy A right now. And um, if uh, A is stronger than B and A has broadcasted its presence to B, but B is un like, um, A is unaware of B, B like, by virtue of A being stronger than B, B has to basically destroy A. Um, as fast as possible because if A is aware of B, then A will destroy B. So he makes this argument. Um, so um, what is your view on like this, um, some may argue, pessimistic view of like the galaxy? Yeah, again, it's nothing I, I think original, um, but when I read it, um, and, and now kind of hearing this, you know, kind of repeat the theories again in English, which is actually very impressive. Uh, and when I have to, when I think about what happened in the book, I can only think about it in Chinese. No, um, I, I read but, the book in Chinese, yeah. but I think I learned okay. game theory in English. So when, when I trust the ideas, I have to translate them in English, yeah. Gotcha, okay. So, so there's two connections that I'm making. Number one is the book 48, Laws of Power. Um, and second thing is about uh, the future of, of artificial intelligence, artificial general, general intelligence, artificial super intelligence. Um, so we can begin with kind of 48 lost powers. So the book is essentially, it's, it's a very, I think, pessimistic and, and really kind of evil book in a sense. Um, when I first read it, I was honestly scared by some of the uh, laws proposed. Um, it's about, you know, how, what you can do to 
always re like remain in a position of power. And um, some of the things that Diallo proposes, right, is um, that you should never show everything that you know, and uh, it's always an advantage to you know, take care of your enemies when they're at the weakest moment. Um, it doesn't really have that much of um, a direct connection to, I think, three-body problem. Um, but I think that is the reality of society where if you want to be the last one standing, the one you have to take advantage of the weak. Um, the second thing is about the future of AI, which is, I think, a, a problem I spent a bit more time thinking about. Um, which is from an evolutionary perspective, right? If there are a limited amount of resources in a closed system, then if you want to survive, you, you will eventually have to eliminate everyone else in the space. Um, this has been proven by a lot of kind of computer simulated experiments where you can have a bunch of different kind of reinforcement learning agents um, in a game and uh, what you will see is in the beginning, two kind of weak forces will actually collaborate. Um, they'll stick really close together and they will try to kind of uh, interact with other, um, other species and try to take them out. Take them out. Um, and that's successful. But as time goes on, uh, if there's a single mutation that happens to one species that makes it stronger um, than the other one, then it will have the ambition to take out something else. And that's inevitable. It's the only way for the other species to kind of protect against that attack um, is just to evolve another feature um, or develop a strategy that's superior to the other species. Um, and throughout evolution on, on Earth, right? we actually see this trend. This is actually how life evolves. It's different species competing against each other um, to, you know, for access to a finite amount of resources. Um, but yeah, that's just the connections I made. Um, number one, I do not understand how Gilson was able to come up with, you know, the dark force theory. Um, that's something I've been trying to reverse engineer, but I can't. Um, it's crazy. That shows kind of his, you know, imagination, um, and that's what makes him great. Um, but these are just two connections that are true, kind of from, which is yeah, from the book. Yeah, um, I'm also thinking more about the problem of like perhaps AGI and you know, the future of humanity. Um, so, do you have any particular thoughts on that in terms of you know, there's there have been proposals of like, hey, you can just um, design um, AGI that somehow um, takes into consideration that of like the needs of humans. Um, how feasible do you think that is? AGI is going to come in the next five to ten years. So that's that's your prediction. That's my prediction. Okay, okay. Um, I'm just going to put it as a title because that's. However, I can back it up. So okay, okay, when it comes to AI. I can actually have a theory. So so this is when I can actually like kind of talk about my original thoughts. Um, number one, AGI wouldn't kill humans. Um, AGI would actually be something that we can control. 
because the very definition of AGI means it's something that that's on par with human intelligence. Um, that means it's something we communicate with, and um, even if it exceeds human intelligence, human abilities, it wouldn't be in a way that is extremely superior to our ability to innovate and to protect ourselves from its abilities. Um, so HCI is an actually the thing that we should worry about. Um, the thing that we should worry about is ASI, um, which is uh, artificial superintelligence and something that we know very, very little about. Um, we can get to that later. I, 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 the reason I said HCI will be invented in the, five, the next five to 10 years um, is that when you think about a human brain, right, the way our consciousness is, is formed is essentially um, a combination of different sensory inputs. So if we, th if we think about human as just a machine, right, a software, which is our operation system, that's our brain, and we have a hardware, which is our senses, um, touch, taste, um, sight, hearing, right, temperature, all of that. Um, and our software is essentially taking in all of these different data types and then forming a worldview. Uh, it's trying to understand how this world works. Now, if you put it in that language, it's actually very similar to, say, any type of machine learning algorithms. Um, from the most basic linear regression, for example, um, it's an X and Y right, graph. And what it's trying to do it's, it's trying to understand how the world works by making predictions. So, obviously, you know, when it comes to neural networks, it's even more about that. It's taking different kind of data points from different dimensions and it's creating a worldview um, with a classifier, right? It's essentially a polynomial equation um, that draws kind of a line through that higher, higher dimension and, and that's trying to predict the truth of the world. Um, now, what has really advanced research in creating like a multi-purpose tool is the transformer. Um, this is like a secret. Um, OpenAI after GPT-3, people kind of saw it. You know, it's general. It's a general-purpose um, model, and of course, DALI, which connects image and text, right? Um, in China, actually, recently they just they just released another model called Wudao um, that does essentially. Uh, text, image, and audio. Um, around half a year ago, I actually had this conversation with a friend about um, the emergence of a super large model consisted of different transformers, each trained on a different data type. Um, essentially, transform the way a transformer works is, um, number one, it can process, uh, sense, any data can be uh, processed into a sequence. A transformer theoretically is able to process any data types. Um, the only limitation right now is actually the positional encoding and, and of course, how large um, a data piece is. For example, an image, right? Or a music, it's very long. Um, but the attention mechanism, which is really the key parts of a transformer, is essentially uh, plotting the relationship between different parts um, of the data. And kind of think about it that way. It's just understanding the relationships between different parts of the data. That's how it understands language, that's how it understands image, that's how it understands music. Um, and when we think about a human brain, which is also processing different sensor data types, um, 
if you imagine you're juggling a ball, right? You're, you're, you have this ball in your hands and you're throwing up. Um, you, at the minimum, you're using like uh, three different sensors. One is touch and balance. Another one is sight. You're looking at the ball and you also have hearing, right? You're predicting that when a ball is falling into your hand, you have a bit of sound. And we can actually model that if we just have three transformers put together, each trained on, say, one sight, another one's uh, touch or balance, another one is hearing. Then when you send these three separate transformers, these three different data types simultaneously, it can also predict what's going to happen next. Um, now, DALL-E isn't exactly on this, right? So the way DALL-E works is we have a pre-trained GPT-3. Um, and they're using variation autoencoders to encode images, and they're basically just adding it to the, uh, to the token matrix. Um, would actually, they're, add, they're adding the token to the image matrix, um, and the, and then you know it goes in together as one data type, and that's how the model is able to find the relationship between text and image. Um, now, HGI, in my theory, in in theory, it's just a very broad thought. Um, it's going to follow this approach, but it's going to be a transformer trained on image, another transformer trained on you know whatever other data type, another transformer trained on um, say text, for example, and um, they will actually have a shared parameter pool, where it's, they will be able to kind of at the same time not only find the relationship between its own data type but also the relationship between this new input versus the, um, the other input that the other two transformers are getting. Um, now, if this actually works, um, essentially a supermodel that effectively understands the relationship between multiple data types. Um, and the cool part about this is you add in kind of self-supervised learning, um, which is kind of like the brain, right? Like, because it's only software, you aren't limited by the amount of data you can have access to. So if you build up like another kind of OS outside of this transformer, you can effectively add like you can just you know detect if you detect new data, just just chug like another transformer to the parameter pool, um, and then you know boom you have enough sensors. That's essentially uh, a model that can model the world just as good as humans. That's HDR. Yeah. Um... I I just need to state here that you made me realize how little I know about transformers. I mean, I read the paper a few times and and I thought that I thought I at least understood one percent, <laughs> but I think right now I understand. Oh, you, you, you probably do. Yeah, it's um, no yeah. the 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 way you link um concepts together, illustrators uh, um, and understand that way um exceeds mine. So I am flawed. But um, maybe just I'll, I'll just probe with two follow up questions with that. Um, the the first is that you talk about how AI is actually basically an ensemble of transformers, each trained on a different um media type, for example, um text, um sound, um vision, etc. So what's the final layer like for the ensemble? Is it like how how do you see it? Is it just a very simple um you know connected yeah. <laughs> layer? So. Number one, I think HGI is definitely like hundred percent going to be so going to be so much simpler than what anyone thinks it is now. Um, one reason, just psychologically, you know, we are biased towards thinking we are more important than we actually are. Um, you know, humans think we are just super, you know, life form. Um, so we think our brain, 
is unique, it's original, and it cannot be replicated. Um, but in reality, you know, there's definitely another version of, you know, another structure that can do exactly what a brain does. Um, and I think that's where HGLs will come from. So the state of transformers today, right, like it has already shocked researchers um, with what it can do given enough data and enough computation power and size. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. Like another example is the swing transformer, which, which you saw me kind of posted in Chainsaw Mafia a few days ago. Um, that's essentially like an image classifier using transformer, right? But the way it works is like before there has been attempts to link CNN, convolutionary, convolutional neural networks, and attention together. Um, but the swing transformer, what it did is essentially it took inspiration from the structure of CNNs. Um, and it used CNNs to process image in a specific way that's very easy for transformer or at least its attention kind of attention layers to understand. So, right, like it's you can kind of think about it as two separate models. There's a pre-processing layer which processes image and turns it into a more digestible form for transformers. Right, and, and just to boom, be clear, the pre-processing layer is basically formed by the CNN, is that it? Was, Sorry, I just be clear. You talk about the pre-processing layer. So when we talk pre-processing, that's, that's it's not CNN like pre-pre-processing isn't like an official term, right? So and also there, it's not CNN. Um, they came up with their own thing. That's that's where the name like swing transformer company um like came from. So it's basically like a little window that like swing like kind of swings from different pixels to pixels, um, and they add it all together and put it into transformer, um, but. That's, that can potentially be like an inspiration for ways to process other data types as well, right? Because for example, I actually did like a bit of research um, into music generation, and something I try to do is like music style tr translation. Uh, you actually, I, the project was um, you have a solo and you have a duet. Um, given the solo, can you generate a duet? And the problem we ran into was essentially positional encoding. If you just use a traditional transformer trained um, like built for text, you can't properly encode music because if you have like say a song that's like three minutes long, that's just too many tokens, right? It's too many tokens. Uh, even GPT-3, that the size limit for token is two thousand and forty-eight because that's how like big the, like that's the length of the positional encoding vector. Um, so we essentially have to find a different way. A different pre-processing pre layer in quotes um, to digest that long uh, audio token in a way that's easy for the transformer to understand. And once that happens, we're going to see something like the swing transformer, which is a transformer that understands audio and music perfectly well. Um, and then, yeah. Right. Um, I just want to ask, how do you arrive at the conclusion that um, position encoding was the issue when you try to create, you know, your solo and duet. Um, so the reason I asked that was because um, when I do machine learning, sometimes I feel there's a black box and I'm like, oh, uh, it is not working and I have no idea why. So I'm very curious, how do you identify a possible issue? Like, what's your thought process behind that? 
Oh yeah, well, that's actually a very easy issue, right? Uh, because it was literally just like when you, when you uh, like, you know, like see, like, like, I was using MIDI files, um, and uh, I just kind of took, I, I turned MIDI files into tokens, right? It was just too long. Like, a song was just way longer than like 2048 tokens. Um, so when I had like actually trained the transform model, I essentially had like, like cut the ch song into chunks and then like feed it by like, you know, by parts. So of course it's not going to be able to understand, um, like it wouldn't connect say the beginning to the end, even the beginning to the middle, anything like that. Um, right. Okay. I, I so, yeah. got it. So, so the transform was unable to basically, um, maybe we can understand the melody, but I can't understand the structure, like the verse, the chorus, is that a good way to put it or? Yeah, and that's like also a problem in text, right? Because when you think about novels or stories, uh, obviously these things are way longer than 2048. So that's why Transformers now, um, even GPT-3, right? If you try to generate like a really long uh, like chunk of text for GPT-3, what you will find is um, there's no logic. There will be logic on the sentence level, but it wouldn't be logic globally. So, um, actually use GPT-3 to build a college app as a generator. Uh, hopefully no teachers listen, listen to this. But, um, you know, I, I just played around with it. I, I've had in like my past essays and stuff. And what I found is um, it can only generate up to like 160 to like 200 English words at a time before the logic just goes out of hand. Um, which means there has to be another like NLP software that like linked different paragraphs together. Um, so, but yeah. Uh, this, this is actually a very interesting problem that I think like a lot of people are trying to solve right now, um, which is how do you solve, how do you make a transformer understand the relationships um, that exist in really long piece of data. Right. So um, back to your point on how EGI be formed within the next three to five years, um, I think 2018 or 2019, Naval, his argument was that, look, right now in neural networks, each neuron is just you have an activation function, but um, the neurons in our brain are actually more different, like like at the more, the more finer cellular level, uh, there there's actually a lot more um chemistry um chemical interactions there as well. So, what are your thoughts on his take? I have some personal opinions on the ball. Um, <laughs> uh, this is actually an interesting one. So, um, I actually I attended one of his like clubhouse rooms. Um. There was a room where two really kind of, it was two AI researchers. It was one researcher and an AI engineer um, talking about the applications and the future of GPT-3. Um, and then the model just came to the room. And what he did is he essentially just bashed against GPT-3. Um, and at that time, that's kind of when I realized how little he actually knew about the inner workings of a transformer in AI. Um, I actually wrote about this kind of on my WeChat as well. Um, listen to Naval on business and philosophy, and philosophy to live a good life, just not on technology. Um, but now back to the point, right? Like, um, Wait, actually, can, can you can you just repeat the question again? Sure, no. I think his argument yeah. was that you know, um, in neural networks, each neuron has just activation uh, yeah, function. The brain. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but the, so, the brain, yeah. yeah. So, so 
to to look at to approach that question, we have to first like know how the brain works, right? So. Um, the brain is essentially a large, large network of neurons, and um, what's funny is actually the function of each neuron do not change, right? If you're born, uh, if you can't be born, but if you made a certain type of cell, you will die a certain type of cell. Um, what you can do as a cell cannot change. Um, but how that neuron processing information is I think a lot of people know the brain kind of uh, functions with like electric waves, um, but but the function of the electric waves, right, EEG waves, um, is that you have you can kind of think about a neuron as just like a little box, uh, even a black box, right? Um, as most people call AI, you have an input, um, you have an input that pro like of of chemicals like flowing in. And you have an output. Um, what the neuron does is, based on the amount of chemicals that it receives, um, it outputs a different type of electrical signals. So that's the thing. The, the neuron, first of all, it doesn't actually output chemicals on its own. Um, how the chemicals work is actually at the very end of that neuron's output channel. Um, there is like a little kind of exit, and that's where all the chemicals are. So the function of the electrical wave is essentially controlling how many chemicals are being like outputted by the neuron. Um, so, so that's the brain. Uh, you can kind of think about it as a very decentralized network um, of kind of individual like agents, but like together they play something that's much, they, they act in a symphony um, that's just too complicated for us to understand, of course. Um, but when it comes to AI, right, obviously activation uh, functions, um, whether it's Relu, whether it's Sigmoid, um, there you cannot replicate uh, chemicals. And in fact, your their purpose as activation functions isn't to replicate chemicals. Um, it's just a model, you know, given uh, zero to one, what's, you know, what's the probability? So, um, I'll say that comparison is like a bit far, um, or at least like I have never thought about it this way. That activation functions are kind of similar to like chemicals outputted by a neuron. Um, what's interesting about um, comes, uh, I, I guess I, I guess I can talk more about similarities. So um, it turns out that. Uh, Okay, the, the, how machine learning algorithms works is backpropagation, right? It's updating against itself. Now, what's funny is actually a backpropagation turns out it also uh, it also happens in a brain, um, but it's bidirectional. So um, not only the neurons change based on kind of like how much uh, chemicals it receives, but also how much electricity it generates. And there's probably some type of feedback output. Where it, on the input side, it also kind of backwards and, and updates uh, the previously, um, but that's kind of as much as I know. But um, in terms of AGI, that's actually my point. Like, we actually shouldn't think about transformers as another a, a replicate of a human brain. Um, it's fundamentally different, and there are advantages to the way a computer processing processing processes information that our brain cannot do. So my philosophy behind the development of AGI is we should understand what these advantages are, um, and a lot of people do. 
right? For example, they can multiply very large numbers. That's basically how neural networks work. Um, humans can't do that. Um, that's not how our brain works. Even if we can do it subconsciously, that's not how it works. Um, so when it comes to the development of, of AGI, we should take advantage of the things that a computer um, is by nature superior than us at, um, and build from there. Um, so before we move on to like how do we um, prevent the threat of ASI, I just want to throw out this pretentious question. So what is intelligence? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because you've been talking know. so much of like, you know, yeah. robot intelligence, human just I'm like, so what is intelligence? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just, you know, like, I'm just gonna think while I talk. Um, I can try to answer what is artificial intelligence, right? Like, artificial intelligence is very broad. Um, it's basically, you know, like you can build like an algorithm that just runs in a square, and you know that's like basically like the first scratch um, program that any like kid builds, right? You have a cat, you run, you turn right, you run, turn right. That's recursion, and that's technically intelligence. It's able to behave like intelligent, you know, like beings. Um, and the reason I'm calling that intelligence intelligence is because if you look at say like bees right there is a very famous video of a bee um, with its head chopped off like on the ground um, it is still you know using its like legs to like clean um, the area the space where like its mouth is supposed to be um, and the most crazy thing is it actually picked up its brain and flew away it's creepy, but is, is there a video of this or? Oh yeah, you can just look it up. It's it's crazy. Okay. I'm going to Google um, it. Yeah, so so that is that essentially shows like okay, number one, you don't actually need a brain to have intelligence, right? Like woo, like because humans think bees are intelligent, right? Bees can have like bees. First of all, they follow the crane, right? They know which flowers are produces, you know. Uh, you know, the kind of honey that they like versus flowers that they don't. Um, they do the like dances that, you know, directs uh, other bees to a particular flower. Um, and we think that's intelligent, right? But it turns out, no, it's, it's, it's not like it's, it's well, at least it's not like it doesn't, a bee does not function like the human brain. Um, it's almost like muscle memory, right? Like there is a certain algorithm that they follow, um, which is encoded in their DNA, in their genes. Um, so yeah, uh, humans are pretty intelligent, right? We, we are, we are okay. We're, uh, but at the same time, even a bee is intelligent in some ways. Um, and we actually still don't know how a bee's intelligence work. So, <laughs> you know, how can I know what is intelligent? <laughs> Right, so um, yeah. I'm going to follow up with a more pretentious question. So, um, how do you think, like a super intelligent being, will think? How do you think they'll act? Um, what do you think will be important to them? If I can predict how uh, a super intelligent, you know, thing will behave, I will be super intelligent. No, that's so. that's exactly the point. <laughs> like, 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 we should just yeah. put, put this out. Then, uh, when when they capture us, then they can at least listen to this, and they can just laugh at us. Oh yeah, I mean, like we, we 
I, I, I can't even imagine, um, like, it's, it's not even about building it. Like, I, I, I can't even imagine, number one, like, how we will, like, collaborate with this thing. Because, like, I mean, it's, it, it might be like an actual extinct, you know, extinction crisis where humans are, you know, about to be wiped out. Um, but then again, like, we will stop, we, we will still try to create it because we're going to want, you know, powered by capitalism, we're going to want, like, technological innovations that maybe humans are just too dumb to create. And, like, we're going to say, okay, here, we're going to create this, like, one tool that solves all these problems. Um, oh, now that I'm thinking about it, it's, it's actually kind of like, you know, finding the one cure for all, all diseases. Um, that's probably the motivation behind ASI. Um, so, if I were to try to predict what ASI will be like, I might first try to predict, you know, what the world would be like if there is like one medicine that can just cure all diseases. Um, how would a company that invents this medicine, you know, uh, kind of price it at? Um, how will governments react to this kind of medicine? Um, and how will like everyday consumers view this, uh, you know, medicine? How will day perception of like life and death change? Um, the close, the closest example I can think about is actually CRISPR. So CRISPR can actually, okay, for those, you know, uh, CRISPR is essentially like a scissors that can cut your DNA. Um, scientists have been using it to like kind of edit um, the sequences of the DNA. If you cut it open, you know, take something out. It takes, you know, maybe like you take uh, some kind of gazelle, you put something in. Um, and uh, CRISPR can actually treat cancer, diabetes, um, AIDS, and all of these long-term diseases that humans think is like uncurable. The only reason uh, it's not like being used by doctors is because it's too expensive. Like it's way too expensive. So if hospitals actually list this as like uh, a viable treatment, um, then, you know, there will be massive inequality. Um, this is why governments actually ban, uh, at least for now, the usage of CRISPR to treat cancer and diabetes and all of these things. Um, but something we know is it's very likely, what's, what's very likely to ha happen is um, the cost of CRISPR is going to drop. Um, and when it does, that's going to be a very interesting future to kind of live in. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, when when you were talking about um the various um like what was was a dream medicine um was like how governments react. I was thinking like that sounds like the primary for another trilogy that maybe you can write. <laughs> that be the <laughs> they can rival a tree body problem. Um, so how do we mitigate the risk of ASI in opinion? I don't know. I mean, I'll give. Uh, or, or maybe, maybe see, they see they, okay the, yeah. the, the thing is about this question is actually like it's a double-edged sword like even like CRISPR right like the, the creative CRISPR never thought about like the risk of governments banning CRISPR and inequalities that it creates um, and, and the reason is because uh, like okay number one as an individual I am more optimistic in humans abilities to solve problems than the problems that we will encounter. That's my fundamental philosophy. So I think like even if we do invent ASI, um, we will find a way to collaborate with it, um, or at least survive against it. Um, so that's personally my, my take on it for now. Um, 
in terms of risk, right? Like, number one, when when people are creating ASI, they're definitely going to focus more on uh more uh, they're doing, they're going to emphasize the benefits that can bring rather than the risk. Um, you know, you know, of course, like this is just from capitalism, capitalistic perspective. You're gonna have to do that in order to like sell the product, right? Like no one wants to, like for for example, Tesla building uh, self-driving cars. They're not gonna talk about how like um, just oh actually a uh, recent incident, right? Like in Tesla China, people are saying that like the brakes doesn't work. Um, now the reason that that is because Tesla's brake is like electric, is controlled by like a computer. Um, and it has to be controlled by computer because um, in the future, if we're going to have self-driving cars, we're going to need computers to control the brake. Um, but you know what happens if it's that connection between the brake and the computer becomes like kind of really uh, weak? Um, it can sometimes not work, right? So like that's a potential risk of self-driving cars. But like we still want it, right? Or at least I do. Um, but also at the same time, like that's a problem that can be solved. That's like solvable with good engineering, um, and I believe Tesla and other car companies will solve this problem. Um, so, so that's my my take on how we will kind of approach AGS, uh, ASS. Right. Um, I think that makes sense. So i'm I'm gonna try to ask this question then um I'm pretty sure it's not a great question but so no what what's your view on like you know AI ethics and AI safety you know um there's 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 quite a bit of like different governments or even different AI bodies talking about the need to be slower and consider more of the ethics and consider the safety issues but from where like I agree with you in the sense that there may be you know scattered order effects that we can't foresee as well so What's your general thoughts on, you know, trying to balance safety without, you know, holding back the development? Yeah, number one, I am a student um, when it comes to AI ethics, uh, like a real student, because my computer science teacher, um, you should actually interview him. He has a lot of great ideas on um, how to build AI that is safe. Um, now, when it comes to AI ethics, um, number one, I will never work on a machine learning algorithms um, that try to like force, like, that try to manipulate like people's psychology. Like for example, Facebook, right? Like their entire AI team is focused on how to make more money. Um, that's the purpose of their machine learning algorithms. It's like YouTube, you know, it's focused on like how to actually make you watch a bit longer. Now, of course, uh, you, could, you can argue that it's, it's also giving you more entertainment, uh, helping you spend less time uh, browsing through shows to find one, you know, and, and just generates what you want to watch. But at the same time, like, again, the incentive is to make the company more money. Um, I don't want to, I, 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 uh, one of my goals for this life is to never build an AI um, or never to take a job that's something like that. Um, so that's, I guess, my outlook on AI ethics in general. Um, I kind of spend more time thinking about like data ethics, which is about like data privacy. And of course, like now I'm building a chatbot, like it's how do we come, like, like how much data does the chatbot have like access, access to? Um, how much data is used for training? Um, who gives that consent? Like these are like kind of more tangible problems on an engineering level to like think about more. Um, 
the AI ethics, I, 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 I think AI should be used as a solution to problems and not a way to like make money. Um, people have been thinking about like, you know, there's just like a analogy where like Jeff Bezos actually like Amazon, uh, well Jeff Bezos said the internet is like electricity. Um, I think the AI will be like the next internet and it will be like the next electricity. It's going to be something that powers a lot of things. It's a, it's a, it's a form of power. Um, and I would like to take a part in that, in building that future rather than the future that we're looking at now. So, um, yeah. Yeah, um, you talk about building a chatbot, so I think this is a perfect um, gateway to CLK. And uh, perhaps you can just introduce to the audience what CLK is. Um, and we can like explore the business aspects, the technical um, aspects from there. Cool. Um, so Salkay is a project I've been working on for four months now. Um, it's still in stealth, so I haven't really like uh, publicly announced it to like a lot of people, um, especially my friends in China. Um, it's essentially a study buddy chatbot for students and a knowledge base for teachers, um, where we automatically analyze the conversation interactions between the student and the chatbot um, to present various like additional data points to teachers to help them teach better. Um, the philosophy behind CLK is to scale existing resources um, to create long-term and consistent interactions that uh, is able to help create um, more high quality learning environments for students. Um, and the problems that Salke is solving comes from my experience in nonprofit work um, and notice the limitations of volunteering and donations. Um, and I'm trying to create technologies to help scale the impact of these resources and people. So I'm just very curious, um, and we just give the audience a bit more context when you go to like the Salke site, the there's a prompt of like the bot asking you like oh, press what you want to learn today and the student can just key in like a certain um, topic and I suppose the bot will have give more prompts or give more content from there. Um, I'm just really curious because a chatbot feels something that is still pretty hard to build or pretty compute intense. Um, so what was the MVP like? Uh, I, I suppose you can say that you know you guys have been staff mode so it's still come for MVP but uh, like what is the very first oh, yeah. Um, version that came out like what was the underlying architecture um how do you train the data um like what what data do you get from this script from where or is it like some data that was accessible yeah yeah um so number one like having this thing built by me like a single person and i'm not the greatest coder in like four months um it wouldn't be possible before like november 26 when um of last year 2020 november 26 when um, Chinese pre-trained model came out. It's a 2.6 billion parameter transform model trained by Tsinghua University and Bai. Um, it's essentially China's uh, you know, replication of GPT-2. Um, it's based on NVIDIA's Megatron architecture uh, and it's just trained like 100 gigabytes of like Chinese data. So uh, I've been like, I, I had inspiration for a while now, like I, I, I first thought about building like an AI teacher back in like September, um, and at times like I was playing around, you know, with like GPT two. I got access to GPT three later, um, and I saw like all the great applications that people actually build with GPT three. Um, Chatbot is one of them. Like GPT three is like, like actually like I, I said it earlier that two thousand and forty eight isn't that long, um, but when it comes to building a chatbot, it's like plenty. Um, 
so it's able to find you know like in like in, in chatbot you don't need that much context maybe you need like of like five to ten lines previously and that's it um so gpt3 can build wonderful chatbots um i knew that um but unfortunately gpt3 does not speak chinese so, <laughs> so yeah uh so so you know like i had to wait for that like cpm to come out to actually uh make like a core feature work now, one CPM coming out is just implementation, right? So um, it created a bunch of prompts. Um, it's uh, like how it's like how anyone else will be like GPT three application. Uh, it's just trial and failure, and then you know try again um, until you find the best prompt. Um, so now is CPM plus birds for sentence similarity um, con uh, connected to a knowledge graph um, plus some basic scripting. Um, uh, the birds knowledge graph and scripting part is old like well it's not that old but they've been it's, um people have been using this like 20 2016 even early like 2015. um so so uh the the things to like kind of take away is that like number one um i'm not inventing any new uh ai architecture um, I am just trying my best to put together existing technologies in a way um that achieves the function um, no other product on the market is doing. Right. Um, two follow-up questions. So how do you get access to a CPM uh, model? Was it like, do you run the, the model on your own servers or do you like, I don't know, I mean, because just because of sheer number of parameters, I, like yeah. cost would be a huge concern. Um, and yeah. and um, the follow-up question is that you mentioned how you have um, CPM, you have birds and you have knowledge on um, graph. So how do you arrive at this architecture? I know I know it's just ensemble of like different existing architectures, but um yesterday I was just trying to look up at um creating chatbots and it seems like there's very little good articles on this. Like I Googled and it was just, oh, you just use Python this library yeah. and this framework, but I know it's not that great, you know. Like so how do you know all this? Because that's what like personally I'm to dig into as well. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't actually know this when I first started. I, I can I'm, I'm, I'll answer the second part first, like how like how it came up with this architecture. Um, my first thoughts on kind of uh, how I wanted uh, the MVP to work is I like I actually wanted to use CPM like like hundred um, percent. It didn't work because two point six billion parameters. It sounds like a lot, uh, but like compared to GPT three, it's tiny, right? Uh, so, so CPM wasn't that great. Um, so it was actually because of that problem, I had to like figure out like an alternative um, to like like the biggest problem with CPM is that you can you can ask it like one plus one equals like what it will give you like three, um, or you know why is the sky blue? Uh, it will give you some like, like really weird answer. If you ask like GPT three why is the sky blue, it will actually give you like a really good answer. Like it would explain how you know how lights reflect and blah blah blah. blah. Um, CPM cannot do that, so I had to like figure out something else. Um, and and yeah, you're right. Like, there isn't really that much good articles in, on like chatbots. Um, and finding out about how to build chatbots in Chinese is even harder. Um, number one, because Baidu sucks, and number two, uh, you know, it's 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 not like most. Yeah, it's just like less personal projects and and less like platforms people like post articles so what i did is um luckily i found like a huge i just found like githubs um like instead of reading articles i just went through people's githubs and try to figure out like how those you know architectures works 
um, I digged up like companies, like for example, Alibaba, right? Um, like all these companies nowadays, they, they have their own like personal systems. So what I did is actually like, I try to figure out how this personal system works. Um, and sorry, yeah, um, sorry to interrupt, but how did you, um, do you ping people at those companies or how do you find out more about those models? Yeah. You, you can just find it, right? Like if you just Google like how, say like a famous example, like uh, it's Microsoft, it's like Xiaoping. Um, it's a Xiaoping because of like how famous it is in China. There's actually a lot of people that like wrote about it, like Baidu, Baikhe, right? Like, you could, you could, like, and then it's just like process of like following a rabbit hole, right? You see like a term you don't understand, you just look it up. Um, and then like it's kind of like solving a puzzle and just like kind of piecing information together. Right. Um, but, like in the end, it's not that complicated. So it sounds like you just have to take it step by step and just figure out as you go along. So what about the data yeah. part then? Um, <laughs> um, like, I suppose you have to call like, um, like I suppose you are fine tuning your models on um, certain data that answers like just a collection of these um academic questions. Yeah. Part. Yeah. So I've been trying to fine tune CPM, uh, but it's not that good. So actually, the one running right now isn't fine tuned. Um, it's just running on some problems. And, and I can actually answer the server calls and question here as well. Um, you'll be surprised that like 2.6 billion parameters isn't actually that big, right? Like the file size uh, in floating point 16, that's like, I think the one that I'm running right now is like five, five gigabytes. Um, that's how large the, the parameter, that's how large the model is. Um, which means this can be ran on like a single GPU. Uh, and then it's just like Google Cloud and DBS. So um, I'm using Tesla P100 as my GPU. Um, and because I don't actually like this, because like I'm not turning on, I'm not, I'm not running the server 24 seven, um, the cost is actually real. Uh, like last month it was like $80 and that was it. Yeah. Well, so no, that's very surprising. I will expect the cost to be like a few thousand dollars at least. Oh, but, yeah. But, um, oh, even how, if I run it like 24 yeah. 7, even if I run it 24 7, like 30 days, it's like $600. Um, ah, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't expect the cost. So it's just way more sustainable. But suppose if, if you have like the China's version of GPT 3, how much do you expect the cost to be? Oh, well, number one, I definitely want to have access to like, you know, GPT 3, right? Like the entire thing. Um, I know they're actually expanding CPM to like 100 billion parameters later this year. That's, that's their goal. Um, so something they would like to do, to do is like turn this into an API. Um, so what I would do, right, is number one, figure out how to get it for free uh, through partnerships or like getting people. Like, like that's one thing about working in like nonprofit space. Um, you show people that you're working something meaningful, you're young. Um, and ask them if you can get it for free. Uh, that's how I do like a lot of my GPT-3 experiments now. I try to get sponsorships. Um, I like used up my free credits already, so I try to like, get sponsorships. Um, and, and, and yeah, that's like, that's way number one, right? The second way, like, I, I think it would actually be cheaper than running a server. I mean, obviously it depends on how much, you know, the government or the inst institution charges for the API per token. Um, but if they do charge it at the same price for GPT-3, which I think they will, um, it, it won't be that expensive, so. 
So how about the data collection part? I think even just a bit earlier, you mentioned how data privacy, uh, how much data to collect, how do you mask the identity of your users? Those are very important factors to you. Um, so how, how are you collecting data right now? Um, because I think that's key to really getting a badass model in the future. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about finding a balance between connecting user identity and data, right? So like the one extreme is to like not label any data at all, like just to keep really long file. Um, like you, you, you can just one, you can just keep one TXT file of like all the conversation like history. Um, or the other extreme is like you like just record everyone's like personal conversation history. Um, you also collect personal information. Um, you put all of these into like separate buckets um, and you like put them into the same folder, right? So like we're kind of in the middle where like um, I actually don't, I, like what I do is I just don't look at kind of like people's individual conversation history. Um, I, I still separate them. So like uh, based on how many uses we have, I have like different, like I have that many copies of different conversation history, um, but I don't actually know who generated um, the history. So, so that's my approach to it right now. Right. So um, you actually have to like read through the conversations to ensure like the conversations oh, are yeah. of a certain quality. Oh yeah. Especially now, right? Like especially, uh, especially like I, I did a bunch of testing. Like that's how you write scripts, right? Like, uh, okay, like for CPM, right? Just trial and error is basically like ask a question. Oh shit, it doesn't work. So I need birds, I need knowledge graph, and then just like write scripts. Um, so that's like how the development cycle works. Yeah. Right. So um, it's almost I can't remember it's about eleven on the side. So you you just wrap up this call with like some final questions on CLK. Um, oh, it's I have nothing actually. I actually I actually joined this. So no right. So no, the issue is like I'm I'm supposed to be at the meeting, but I just like skip it. Okay. <laughs> I know it's not. No one will know. <laughs> Um, but no, no. Um, I I think like. I think there's still some questions that perhaps you can like jump, you know, a few months down the road. Yeah, whereby I have more, thing. you know, more things to ask you, and my when my brain gets fresh, cause my, yeah, you're throwing a lot of a signal at me. I want to make sure that my brain processes okay. everything. <laughs> um. So how do you, how do you go about like what's your strategy for um reaching out to schools and making like them partners in this um nonprofit um. What are some problems you've encountered? And um, yeah, perhaps you can just describe that general process. Yeah, so these problems I think are like, uh, like comments, like, like they're just the usual problems like any nonprofit face, especially in China, where like the government faces, puts like very strict restrictions like what a nonprofit organization can and cannot do. Um, one thing about CLK is since we're not actually teaching anything, um, we kind of avoid this checking of like, you know, like of the government has to like review our curriculum. So that's, that, that makes our lives a bit easier. Um, uh, now, the reason we need the government's involvement is because if we actually build a scalable product um, and our goal is to kind of get, you know, uh, all the cities from around the country to actually use it, we're gonna need governments to back our thing, um, just to make it more legitimate. Because if, if a project isn't backed by the government in China, um, it's very hard for schools to massively adopt it. 
So that's one of the challenges I'm gonna have to figure out like this summer when I'm going back. I'm actually going back to China in like a week. Um, and that'll be like one of my, and staying until like September. Uh, so that'll be one of my top like priorities to like establish partnerships, like local government kind of organizations. Um, like essentially sign like, memoran like memorandums of like understanding. Um, that's one way. The second way was like, I'm, I'm very grateful of my co-founder, Alex. Um, he's the founder of EFA, which is Education for All Foundation. Um, they've been running since 2018. And um, he's been very generous in that he's actually sharing kind of his connections with the schools, with the project. Um, so all of our partnerships right now actually comes from relationships that we've built at EFA, um, as well as kind of just word of mouth and the reputation we've built. Um, something we learned when doing kind of growth and expansion for EFA is that all the rural schools are really connected to each other. Um, so if you build a product that like one school loves, um, you know, the principal and the teachers like automatically actually share what you're working on with other schools and, and news travel really fast. Um, the third way of marketing is essentially partnering with other like big companies and uh, other like kind of public figures or nonprofit organizations. So a part of what makes Socket special is in the future it can actually be a self-servicing platform for students. Right, so I, I'm also uh, a member of the board of directors for NanoSeed, which does microfinance and scholarships. Um, one of our challenges has always been like finding the right people to give scholarships to. So for Cellcade, because we're interacting with students over a really prolonged period of time, um, the data we collect on students can be like really valuable insights for nonprofits. Um, so they can actually produce like, uh, they can actually develop algorithms to like automatically like select um, or recommend like which students they're going to give scholarships to based on like um, the conversation data. So um, that's kind of our, our like value prop to these nonprofit organizations, um, and that's like a potential way, uh, potential partnerships and like marketing uh, channel as well. Right. Um, I think we can explore you know nonprofits and your thoughts on like press effective altruism in our next call, perhaps a few months yeah. down the road when. You know, after you're back in China and, and just keep to keep an update on how things go on that that end. Um so we can just end the call with like one final question. Um this is going to be a cheesy question, so just brace yourself. But okay. like what what would your advice be for anyone who wants to Oh my to god. Be, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this I, I already told this you. This is a this is, okay, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it, like, go, go like, ahead. Like, <laughs> you can just pick but yeah. um, like in terms of being a prolific learner. And and the the reason I asked that is because I have friends who who kind of regretted taking their majors in college. They are like, hey, you know what? I didn't actually learn any hard skill. And I've always told them that you know what, that's true. But the best people I know are are all building their own projects, and that's how they learn best. So um, yeah, that cheesy question. So what will your advice be for them? Yeah, no worries. I I am I'm just humbled because this is always the question I ask. Like you know any advisor or people I meet, um, and they ask me, I, I'm flattered. Um, number one, I am not a prolific learner. Uh, I I'm actually not that humble, good at math. I think you're very prolific. Uh, <laughs> and the second thing is like, I'm not even in college yet, right? Like I haven't chosen the major. Um, I haven't actually even decided like whether I want to go to university or not. Um, 
So I, 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 I can't give advice to anyone that's trying to change their major. That's no, no, I, I don't, I, I don't, mean, yeah, I don't mean changing uh, major, but in the sense that they have like graduated and they are like in what, like yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I think, I think based, okay. Based sorry, on sorry, my, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I think, I think yeah. what I'm trying to say here is that, um, I think too many times in society generally kind of judge people based on their age or their experience. But honestly, I think like it's not about your experience, about your expertise, if that makes sense. So um, I I think what my question is trying to get at is that we should like we should learn from anyone that we can, and and in you obviously you have like this project, this nonprofit that have built that I think people can draw a lot of experience, a lot of like um useful advice from, which is why I'm framing this question. Yeah, so please don't be overly humble. In fact, no, you can't learn anything from me. <laughs> then they'll come and defeat the purpose of the question. Yeah. Um. Okay, so I'll I'll try to keep this one like as general as possible, so that it's kind of suitable for people of all ages, of all backgrounds, and just for a bit more context, right? Like, I didn't start doing any of this until like. Like in this, I mean, like nonprofits, like startups, learning actually about how to run organizations until like a year ago. Um, but so what I would say is, um, you will definitely face a lot of doubters, people who just don't believe in what you want to do. And the second thing is, if you were to actually know the things that you will go through before you start. You will probably like never start. Um, so, given these two things, um, in list of priority, the one thing you should absolutely focus on is just simply being obsessed with the problem that you want to solve. I don't care if you're doing nonprofits. It doesn't matter if you're doing a project. It doesn't matter if you're doing an actual company. Um, if you don't want to solve a problem, if you don't have a problem to solve. You will never actually complete it, because what you're gonna do is hard. If it was easy, um, everyone else would be doing this. So that's number one: be relentless and be obsessed with the problem. Um, the second thing is understand very early on that if you're an engineer, um, please work on your communication and marketing skills, and if you're a a community builder or marketing person work on your engineering skills, um, because what you know now is likely a result of interest and talent. Um, given that you may have never actually explicitly put in effort to like work on the things that like your weaknesses or you just think are important. Um, but if you want to be a founder, if you want to be someone who actually do something, I think um, you have to build. You have to sell. Um, it's very general advice, but. You have to do both of these things really well,、um, or at least find people who can complement your skills and work well with them. So that's the second thing.、Um, the third thing is build an audience. So find people who can who can back you up, and find people who can motivate you when like you're just like kind of you know down. Because there will be moments when you're unmotivated to work. Um, there will be moments when you feel like there's no structure in your life, when you think what you're doing is worthless, or you think everyone else is better than you.、Um, find people who can actually inspire you. That's that's really important.、Um, 
Notice I didn't really say knowledge and skills. I think knowledge, skills, and importance, and they're like what companies like look for when they try to hire you. Um, but when you're trying to just you know improve yourself, try, I actually try not to focus on like one specific knowledge or skill too much, um, because ultimately knowledge and skills are just tools. They're screwdrivers. Being really good. At knowing what a screwdriver is, won't do anything. Right? You have to actually know what a screwdriver is for, um, and you know, you know, don't try to putting a nail with a screwdriver. Use a hammer, right? So, um, and, and another thing to think about is that it's like there isn't any knowledge or skill that's like special that like any average like healthy person cannot learn. So whatever you know, you're not special. Um, anyone else given enough time and the same experiences you have been through, they can learn it just fine, even better than you. Um, so yeah, that's that's I guess the general advice. Right. Um, I'm going to scrub my own ending by asking a follow-up question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, that was a perfect um and, and like a point for me to end. But I just have to ask this question: Is that you talk about how it's important to know both um building and selling? So, um, in your day-to-day -day life, how do you go about managing these two? I think it's too easy for someone who is better at a certain skill, better at one domain, to just want to do that domain because they're more competent at it. So, how do you do? You actually, consciously structure your timetable, um, to make sure that you block time out for selling, or like even within selling, there's like marketing, there's SEO, there's like. Um, copywriting or things like that. So, how do you approach all these subdomains? Yeah. So, I actually learned this uh, through a failure. Like last time, when I did my first nonprofit, we eventually failed because the marketing was horrible. Um, that's why I'm learning marketing now. Um, uh, again, like I think my reason for like learning marketing is just because I learned to, if I want to make something work. I'm gonna have to like market it, uh, and, and that goes with number one. That's why you have to be obsessed with the problem because if you really care about problem you want to solve, you're gonna do anything. Um, and of course, I, I started watching like YC videos. I follow people on Twitter, and, and this is like this is like be a buyer and be a seller. That's like actually, that's actually like a catchphrase on you know like you know startup world. Um, but I think it's very true. Like for me, when I'm learning marketing. Um, I, I, I really sucked in the beginning. I was one of these like you know like boys that just have no taste for what is good art and what is bad art, uh, what is even art at all. I had like no understanding of, of what these are. Um, so in the beginning, you know, I, I, I just found people who can like give me who can mock me and at the same time give me constructive criticism. That's honestly how I learned. Um, and and that's also actually why number three is important, I guess. Um, but yeah, like learn from people who can teach you, like especially marketing, because in actually, I, actually, I think anything, like you can learn a lot by just building things on your own. But eventually, you're gonna need feedback, and having that group of people who can actually give you feedback is it's really important. I think that's a brilliant place to end. Um, building a community yeah. of people who can um, support you and vice versa as well. Um, this is a beautiful conversation, John. Um, hope to have you back.
on the podcast, you know, perhaps in October, December, when there's more updates on how things go locally in China with all those, um, at, I suppose, town or rural area. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, it's great talking to you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this episode, just leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with one to three friends. I started this podcast with the intention of having awesome conversations with interesting people and having your support means a lot. Thank you.